0: to Revelation chapter 2, and we're reading at, beginning at verse number 8 tonight. Revelation chapter 2, and we'll begin at verse number 8. And mentioning our visitors, I overlooked my mother-in-law and father-in-law, uh, Momo and Papa Webb. Glad to have them here tonight. Uh, he keeps us all straight on the hill, I'll tell you that. Now, it's hot to me, and I'm going to take my coat off. I don't know what's happened to the blower out there. I guess the blower is going. There's nothing cool, is it? All right, Revelation 2. And uh, we come tonight to uh, the letter to the church of Smyrna. Verse 8 reads like this. And unto the angel, the angelion, the messenger of the church, the assembly in Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last... Which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now as I pointed out to you earlier in the previous messages, in chapter 1 verse 19 we find the divine outline of the entire book of the Revelation. In verse 19, remember these words, And the Lord said to John, Write these things which thou hast seen, chapter 1, and the things which are, chapter 2 through chapter 3, and the things which shall be hereafter. Revelation chapter 4 through the end of the book of Revelation. Now that's God's simple outline of this particular book. We have already seen the things that John mentions and says, which thou write the things which thou hast seen. That is, he refers to the glorious, majestic, thrilling vision that was given him of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice in that particular vision that many character traits of the Lord Jesus were expressed and given. And also it's very interesting to note this, that all of those character traits are incorporated to some degree, part and maybe not only one but maybe two, in the letters to these particular churches. I'll remind you of one other fact that we have already considered. And that is, there is a fourfold view or application of these particular letters that are written to the seven churches. And let me give those to you again. First, there is the application or the view that we can call the present application. That is, there was indeed existent at the time churches by these particular names. And the Lord was speaking a present message to them in their distress, in their need, and in their problems. And then you'll find that not only is there a present view or application, but secondly, there is a personal application, which simply is to say, in every one of these letters, there is a personal message for every one of us who read, who hear, who obey what our Lord has given. And so there are many times those personal applications are are understood by us in this particular letter to the church of Smyrna. How often, as I said last Sunday night, I have to go back to what the Lord said to the church in Smyrna and said, I know thy poverty. And uh, that's a personal encouragement to my heart. I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. And then there is a perennial application or view. And that is to say that there is never a time in the history of the church on this earth when some of, if not all of these things, were not existent. So it is a perennial message to the church from the time of its birth at Pentecost until the coming again of our Lord in the air to receive the church unto himself. Now then there is a fourth application and that is, it is there is a prophetic view or a prophetic application. We believe then that all seven of these churches were specifically chosen by the Lord to portray to us a prophetic picture and history of the church from its beginning until its rapture and its gathering unto the Lord. In other words, these seven churches depict seven particular periods in the history of the church. We have already seen last Sunday night and looked at the letter to the church of Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus in the prophetic uh, time uh, slot uh, fits into the church in in its existence from its beginning up until about 100 A.D. So we've got about 100 years that this particular church of Ephesus is portraying to us. It was the apostolic church. It was a church that was very active. It was on the move, but yet our Lord had that one thing against them, and that is they had left loving the Lord Jesus first. And isn't it so easy, folks, to get so involved in activities, constantly doing this, constantly going there, and yet to get it is so easy in that kind of circumstance to forget the Lord and to place other things in the position that he indeed deserves and ought to have. Now then this church at Smyrna, I think you'll find fits into that prophetic application into the period of about 100 up to around 300. I noted Dr. Schofield's note says up to about 336. If you were a student of church history... It would be amazing if you were to read that history of the church, you would find so many of the things that are mentioned in these particular churches existed in these particular time slots of the church and its existence on the earth. So here is the church of Smyrna. Uh, it is called the Suffering Church. Uh, I like to think of it as the church of the burning bush. The church of the burning bush. Do you remember that incident back in Exodus chapter 3 when the Lord arrested the attention of Moses? And there was that bush that was aflame with fire. And Moses saw that and he was so amazed for he saw the flame around the bush but the bush was not consumed. And he turned to see what this was all about. Fire, indeed, is representative of judgment, of trial, of severity. And yet the church of our Lord has gone through many a period of fire and testing and tribulation. And yet, thank God, it is not consumed. It is still existent. It is the church triumphant and the church glorious. And then uh, I think of the words of our Lord who said, That upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the term is the gates of hell will not swallow it up. And so the church may be suffering. It has gone through many a trial and test and persecution and setback. But still thank God it is in existence. I think primarily that reference in Exodus 3 applies to the Jew, to the people of Israel. But I thought you would see with me a definite application here to the suffering and the persecuted church. The name Smyrna was not chosen haphazardly, for the name Smyrna actually comes from the word from which we get the word myrrh, uh, it is a, an aromatic spice whose fragrance literally is best uh, noted when that, uh, that uh, spice is crushed uh, and bruised. And so here is the church of Smyrna, the suffering church, the bruised and the bleeding church, if you please. Now this letter has been called as well, the poor rich church. The letter to the poor rich church. The church at Smyrna, you'll find, was a church that endured great persecution. And in the history of the church in those years of 100 to about 300 A.D., persecution was very severe and very harsh. It was directed uh, during the time from Nero up through the emperor Diocletian. The persecution that these men brought upon the church was something I think that most of us could really very very little, uh, if any, understand what they endured. This was actually the second great persecution of the church. The first was in the beginning of the church, back in the apostolic time, and now comes the great persecution brought on by these emperors of Rome. The city of Smyrna, by the way, preserves its name until the very present day. It has its same same name. However, in about the year 500 BC, the city of Smyrna was destroyed. There was an ancient poet uh, who, uh, who said of this city of Smyrna, pride destroyed Smyrna. And pride will not destroy a city. It will destroy a family. It will destroy a church. It will destroy an individual. The Bible warns us severely about the ultimate result of the proud heart. Pride goes before destruction. And a an haughty spirit comes before a fall. Though the city was destroyed in around 500 BC, Alexander the Great restored and rebuilt the city of Smyrna, and still the very place maintains that name of Smyrna. The city was populated largely by Jewish and heathen, but there was a minority, a small group of those who called themselves followers of the Christ. In other words, a small group in the city of Smyrna were born again Christians. Another interesting note of history I found was that Polycarp, one of the great church fathers, was apparently the bishop of the church in Smyrna. This great man of God stood firm and tall for the Lord Jesus in his ministry at the church of Smyrna. So with such hostile circumstances prevailing in this city and in the church of Smyrna, the Lord addresses himself to these in Smyrna as, and notice what he says, as the first and the last, the one who was dead and is alive. I think, number one, our Lord chose that trait and character trait of himself For a specific reason and that was to say to these Christians who were suffering so greatly in Smyrna that he himself was the master of these darker matters. He was the master of life and of death, of hell and of the grave. Back in chapter 1 and verse 18, you'll find where John saw him and heard him say, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of hell and of death. The the, key is, by the way, a symbol of authority. It is a symbol of the answer. And I'm glad that our Lord not only is the authority, has power over death, over hell, over life itself, but he is the answer to the problems of life, to the problems of death, to the problem of hell. And not only that, but he reminds them of his authority in this expression. He is reminding them as they are facing the threat of death that he has authority over death. I think as we could well remember how our Lord approached the tomb of Lazarus he who had been dead and was buried and yet when our Lord came upon that scene and spoke with authority Lazarus come forth uh, the very authority of our Lord caused the jaws and the chains of death to fall asunder and Lazarus who was dead came forth notice very carefully what he does say here it is not he does not say rather he that was alive and is dead. Did you notice that? He said he was dead and is now alive. If he had have said he who was alive and is now dead, he would have been mo- no better than Mohammed, no better than Buddha, no better than Confucius. And yet that's all you can say about the false religion of the world. They're leaders, their founders. You can go to their tombs. That's where their bones are. But when you go to the grave where they laid our Lord, thank God it's empty. And I know it is. Now, I've been in there myself. I went in and just shouted up a storm inside of that old rock cavern and uh, praised God that I knew he wasn't there. And so he is alive. He was alive. Now, though he was dead, he was dead as alive, tells us of the resurrection. Paul reminds us because Jesus came forth from the grave, we too shall rise. I know that Taz Russell and the Jehovah's Witness Watchtower society, uh, Millennial Dawnies, uh I don't know whatever other aliases they may have. If I was as crooked as they were theologically, I'd change my name every once in a while too. But anyway, you're welcome. But anyway, uh, Taz Russell and his group says that Jesus' body was not really resurrected. Uh, All that happened there was some gaseous form or some spiritual kind of resurrection. Now, if it had been a spiritual resurrection, they would have found his body in there. But you see, the Bible reveals that Jesus came forth and his body raised up from the dead, victorious over death and the grave. The modernist would have you to believe that the fact and the teaching of the Bible relative to the resurrection of our Lord and even of the saints of God is only an outgrowth of the mysticism of the dark ages. But I'm glad, listen, I'd rather trust what Jesus said I'd rather trust what God said any day than any kind of modernist theological professor who stands in the swankiest classroom in America. I'd rather believe our Lord. Well, he was dead. The Bible teaches that. He died because of our sin. And yet he died for our sin. And not only did he die, but he was raised from the dead and he was raised for our justification. He was raised for our life. So here our Lord encourages the suffering, persecuted children of God in Smyrna and reminds them of his character that he is the one who has the authority over death. They need not fear death for he has the key of death and of hell itself. Now there are three things I want us to notice in the conclusion of this letter. Notice with me the comfort that he gives to them, the counsel that he gives to them. And finally, the crown that he offers. So look at them with me. He comforts them and says, look back at the verse, verse number number 9. And he says, I know thy works. I know thy works. You ever stop to think what an encouraging word I know is? I know. You ever remember when you was a child, you got your finger cut or your uh, knee skit, and uh, you came crying to mama and uh, mama just holds you up real close and say, oh, I know, I know, I know it hurts, I know. And uh, I don't know if any doctor ever cooked up any medicine any better than that. I know, she'd say. And the Lord is saying to these who are undergoing such trial, I know what you're going through. I know your works. I know all the labors. And you know, sometimes we think, well, nobody notices what I do. I try to do everything I can for God and in the church and nobody knows. But, oh, he said, I know. I know thy works. Oh, they were weak and poor and they couldn't do much. But God was saying, I know. Our Lord saying, I know what you're doing. I know every, every ounce of energy that is spent. I know every turn of your hand. I know every ache and muscle in your body. I know. I'm glad there is someone who knows and who can say, I understand. I understand. Jesus always takes note. He took note of the widow woman who brought that little mite. Just a very small offering, unnoticed by the others, but our Lord noticed it. And he takes note of the little things we do, as well as the big things that we do in life. These were doing indeed what they could. They may not have been able to do what some other churches were doing. They may not have been able to top the scales like some. They weren't the largest church in the circle of churches in that, in that century. But they were doing what they could. And that's what God wants to do. He doesn't call on us to be just alike. There are ministries that every church performs and ought to perform for the glory of God. Out in the Mississippi Delta, they have those great big old caterpillars that pull 18-row cultivators and just go down through there, turning dirt up right and left. And I thought about those fellows, and I just stand in awe when I see them pulling that wide, that wide disc and tearing up so much dirt. And then I drive up in the hills. And occasionally I used to see, I don't see so much now, I used to see a fella plowing an old mew. Didn't have but one just an old single foot plow, you know. And yet you could see that fella, he is up in there plowing out the corners. He had plowed the corners. And hey, I want to tell you something. God called some of us to plow out the corners. He called some of us to do that that work that nobody else can get to. And so the Lord said, I know what you're doing. And I know you're doing what you can. And I take note of that. I notice what you're doing. And I want you to know, child of God, everything that you do for his glory, even if you give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, our Lord knows about it. And he says, you'll not go without your reward. I think a lot of us are going to be shocked when we stand at the judgment seat. I think we're going to be not only shocked but surprised. To hear our Lord call many of those we thought were never doing much of anything. And yet they did what they could. They offered themselves. They gave of their means, their time, their prayer. They gave of themselves. And I believe we're going to be surprised when the Lord passes out the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Not only does he say, I know thy works, but notice, I know thy tribulation. I know the trial that you're going through. Now the word tribulation signifies a pressure of persecution. It is something they are down under. Our word tribulation comes from an old Roman word, a Latin word that suggests the stripes that are placed on a person's back by, for example, the Roman soldier as they did when they plowed the furrows in the back of the Lord Jesus. But the word tribulation has come today to suggest the pressure of of stones that grind the wheat or that press out the juice from the grapes. Those giant stones, you've been down, some of you, those old grist mills and uh, ran by water. And those stones just grind around on each other. And the Lord is saying, I understand what you're going through. You're underneath the pressure. And it seems the very life of your being is being pressed out of you. And there's no hope for you. All oh, he said, I know what you're going through. And you see, when Jesus said, I know, he spoke from the standpoint of experience. I know, he said, I've gone through that. I've gone through that. I've suffered that myself. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 reads, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched. And the word touched here is the same word for which we get our word sympathize. We have not an high priest who is not able to sympathize with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Aren't you glad there's someone who sympathize with you? And Jesus is that one. He knows. He's been there. He suffered that. He experienced that. And now he turns in sympathy to these who are undergoing this severe persecution. I think a message such as is given here to the church of Smyrna, I don't think it can be fully understood by those of us in this century who of us tonight in this audience could stand and speak of such severe persecution, of imprisonment because we've stood for Christ of exclusion because we have stood firm in our testimony and in our our faith in the Lord Jesus. Who of us has had loved ones to have their heads cut off or loved ones to be thrown into the lion's den or to let wild dogs devour them? Oh, listen, I don't think we can really understand, but yet I think we ought to remember what it cost, uh, cost the Lord and even those who came before us to make possible what we experience and enjoy even tonight in this very church. I don't think we really know what it means to suffer for Christ. Not many of us have had to experience that. And yet this very church itself was suffering because of their testimony of Lord Jesus. And yet... I think sometimes we do not suffer because we're more diplomats than we are denouncers of sin. I think if we stood as tall and firm and courageous as those in the early days of the church against sin, perhaps there would be far more persecution levied on us. John the Baptist was one of those who suffered the loss of his very life. Because he dared to stand in front of a king and say to him, it is not right for you to have your brother's wife. The Bible does tell us, as Paul wrote to Timothy, however, that if any man will live godly, if his life is of godly character, he shall suffer persecution. And so then, the Lord saying, I know what you're going through. I know the tribulation, the trial. I think of Polycarp, the bishop of this church in Smyrna. It is said that at the age of 86 years, he was arraigned before the tribunal, sentenced to death, to be burned at the stake. And after having been tied to the stake and the wood was there, ready to be lighted, they said to him, we give you one last chance to denounce this Christ whom you preach, to deny your faith. And Polycarp replied saying, 86 years have I served him. And he hath done me no wrong. How then can I speak evil of my king who saved me? Thank God for a man like this man who would stand even in the face of death itself. And the story tells us that he died singing and praising God. Oh, what a difference there is in those of the early days of the church and those of us day. We can just be under a little trial, under a little persecution, and man alive, we're ready to throw in the towel. We complain, we grumble, but yet Polycarp praises God and sings songs of thanksgiving to him that even he was worthy to suffer such. Many of those in early days suffered as did these in Smyrna, under Nero, under Diocletian, Many were thrown to the dogs that tore them limb from limb. Same thing occurred when they were thrown to the hungry lions. Many were made literally human candles and alighted and used as light uh, to give forth light in the stadiums and the arenas. Others were beheaded. In the book of Hebrews, the record of Scripture itself speaks of what many endured. Look in Hebrews chapter 11 just for a moment. Chapter 11 of Hebrews in verse 36 And the verse says, And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, beatings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, sawed in two. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. How many of us would fit into any of that category? Because we've stood firm and tall and faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a strange thing, but yet our Lord chooses the lot for some to suffer. I could not give you an answer why we in this country of America have not suffered the severe persecution because of our faith in Christ that some have. In Russia, as the years have gone by, hundreds upon thousands of men and women have been imprisoned and died and executed because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. Many have been cast into prison because they simply passed out a gospel tract. Or oh, they were found in, the, found in their possession, was found a Bible, a copy of the sacred word of God. They were imprisoned. They were castigated. They were outcasts of society. Oh, listen, how little we endure in this day for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And then he said, I know something else about you. I know thy poverty. I know thy poverty. Oh, listen, the Lord Jesus knew experientially what it meant to be in poverty. He had not even a place to lay his head. No home, no roof over his head that he could call his own home. And yet, our Lord Jesus says to these, I understand. I understand what you're suffering. I understand your poverty. And I can't help but believe, as our Lord says this to them, undoubtedly, some in Smyrna have been saying, Oh, we're so poor. We can't do anything. It's just impossible. We don't have the means to do it. And we're in such great uh, grip of poverty. And I think the Lord must be saying to them, you're making the wrong confession. For he said, I know thy poverty. Actually, their properties had been confiscated. They had been robbed of their possession. They had had taken from them the law, the many things and they suffered, as the scripture said, the loss of all things. But he said, watch this, I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. What a paradox. What a strange statement. How can a fellow be poor and rich at the same time? And yet, indeed, Paul was aware of how it could happen. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10, he wrote saying, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. What a strange contradiction. Sorrowful, and yet rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. What a paradox that is. And yet the child of God may be poor as far as material standards are concerned. But I would say to you, you can make men and women millionaires eternally by introducing them to the Lord Jesus. Why, the monies of this world, the currency, the silver, the gold is going to perish with this world. But that that you invest in eternity is going to last on and on and on. And though Paul said, I'm poor, yet I'm making many rich. Rich, he says. I think of the widow of Nain, poor widow. She lost her only child. Now she was en route to the burial. The young man was lying there, a corpse on that funeral bier. And Jesus comes upon the scene and says to the young man, son, arise. And the scripture reveals that that young man that was being taken out of the graveyard arose. He was restored to his weeping mother. Ah, listen, she wasn't rich, but she had Jesus What else does a fellow need? He may not have money in the bank, but he has Jesus. And so it was not of this woman of Nain, but I think of Mary and Martha living over there in Bethany, the very poorest section around Jerusalem, a poverty-ridden area. And yet Jesus was often there, but Lazarus, their brother, died. They didn't have any money. They didn't have all the things necessary. But ah, they had Jesus. And I want to tell you, you may not have a lot of the things this world boasts of, but if you have Jesus, listen, you've got everything. All that I need is Jesus. He is the answer. He is the authority. And therefore, he's saying to these, I know you're poor, but oh, how rich you are. How rich you are. You know, I've gone way back up in the mountains, North Carolina. Used to have an old aunt, lived up there. She's dead in heaven now. Lived in your old run-down shack of a house. You didn't have much money, hardly enough to buy her brood snuff with. And yet, old Aunt Betty, when you go up there, she is the richest woman you'd ever seen in your life. She had a peace that I know millionaires would have given half, if not everything they had, to have the peace Aunt Betty Crane had in her heart. They would have given all their property. They would have given their fancy automobiles. They would have given their palatial homes. If they could have the peace, the joy, the contentment she had in her heart. Ah, oh, listen, you may not have much of this world's good, but if you have Christ, you have what this world longs for more than anything else. Our Lord knew for, uh, whereof he spoke when he said, I know thy poverty. He wrote, uh, as, or Paul wrote rather, and he said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yes, yet he became poor for your sakes, that you through his poverty might be rich. When I read that verse, I think of a wealthy man. And here he has a very poor neighbor, hardly able to make ends meet. And one of that very wealthy man with millions goes over to his poor neighbor and says, I'm going to give you every dime I have. I want you to have it all. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying our Lord did. I'll give you all that I am and all that I have. He who was rich. Yet gave his riches away to poor sinners like you and me that through his very poverty, ah, you and I have become rich. And then he said, I know the temptation, I know the reviling, the blasphemy of those who claim to be Jews and are not, but they are of the synagogue of Satan. In other words, you here were those who were coming into the church and saying, hey, we're one of you. But he said, I know they're not. They're Satan's emissaries. They're there to inflict more injury and bring greater disturbance in the very, wor- in the very family of God in the church in Ephesus. They were professors but not possessors. They were hypocritical in their profession. They knew not the Lord Jesus and yet they tried to put themselves off on the, on the saints of Smyrna as being true children of God. We're Jews, but he said, I know they're not. Paul wrote of that in Romans 2, in verse 28 and 9. And he defines the true, the genuine Jew. And he says, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, But but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. So here our Lord comforts them by what he knows. He knows their poverty, knows the trial, the blasphemy of those who have come posing as true followers of Christ, but they're not. Notice secondly, he counsels them. And he says simply this, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer, The word fear simply says, don't be terrorized by what awaits you in the future. How many a child of God today is hindered in his life because he is fearful, he is terrorized of things that he imagines could happen, that might happen, that might come to pass. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy and says that God hath not given us the spirit of an attitude of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. John reminds us there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear and faith do not go together. Fear and real love for the Lord God do not go together. If we love him and know that he loves us, we know that he will not permit anything to come in our lives that is going to destroy us or we may think it's going to. But yet that faith, that hope, that trust, that confidence in God cast out the fear that otherwise would possess us. And then he said, don't be afraid, because he said some of you are going to be cast into prison. And there's a reason for it, to be tried, he said. Now one thing I can assure you of if you're a child of God, the Lord is going to put you to the test. And yet Peter says, don't think it's strange when the fiery trial or test comes. For he said it is through that trial that you'll come out as pure gold. God is endeavoring to get out the rubbish and the trash out of your life and he often does it through the trial and the testings that indeed we go through. The reason then that you're going to be tried is that God wants to purify you and increase you and strengthen you and make your life richer in him. But not only is there a reason for the trial, but the trial, whats this, is restricted. He said you're going to suffer for 10 days. 10 days. Notice the Lord didn't say it's going to go on forever and forever. I think I told you about the dear black preacher who preached the sermon on it, and it came to pass. And he said, and that means Trouble, trouble, and it came to pass. Didn't come to stay. Adversity. It comes, but it doesn't come to stay. It comes to pass. And so here the Lord is saying, trials and testings are going to come, but he puts a restriction, they will not last forever. Somebody said that perhaps this very ten days could have referred to ten different rulers in Rome who indeed inflicted trial and severe suffering upon the people of, of, of the Lord in the church of Smyrna. I don't know about that. So there's a special period, a short period of testing that they were going to go through. Now he said this, I counsel you, be thou faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. We talk about that, but many folks, hard for them, be faithful in life, much less death. So be faithful unto death. Trustworthy. Be dependable, be reliable unto death itself. Stick by the gun, stay by your post, stick to your job, even in spite of the persecution and the adversity. And then finally, notice the crown that he promises there. He said in the last, uh, the last verse, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will, verse 10, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And Jesus said, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. The truth is, Jesus is saying, you may experience the first death, but the second death will not touch you. Why? Because they have been saved by trusting Jesus Christ. He has given them that second birth. He has given them eternal life in himself. And therefore, the second death cannot touch them, have any power over them whatsoever. He does say, to him that overcometh, to him that overcometh. And yet John tells us who the overcomer is. Who is he that overcometh, even he that believeth that Jesus indeed is Christ. It is our faith that overcomes the world. And it is through that same faith in the Lord Jesus that we're made children of God and given assurance that the second death will have no part. No, will not touch our very lives. The suffering church of Smyrna, God grant that when you and I go through trials, we'll not give up the ship, we'll not throw in the towel, but that we'll remember even in spite of all that we're going through, the Lord's saying, I know. I know, what you're, I know where you're hurting. I know what you're experiencing. I know the pain that's there. I understand. And he's saying, if you'll stick with a gun, Death itself may take you away physically from this earth, but I'll give you a crown of life. Life is yours in Jesus Christ. God, grant that we in this day will be a part of uh, the, the church of the burning bush, that in spite of all we go through, still we'll not be consumed, but we'll stand tall and firm and faithful for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee for the comfort that it brings us. Dear Lord, we're so glad that we have a Savior who knows. We're glad that You know what we experience. You know the pain that's in our hearts that's so deep sometimes we don't even have words to express it. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that not only do You know, but You stand by us. You give us Thy promise. Lord Jesus, we know we're going to go through some trials, testings. Many of our people here tonight have gone through some of those and some are going through them. Help them to know that you're standing with them, that you know. And the Lord, you will not permit those trials to last forever. You have restricted them. You said in the word that there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. God will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to it. We're glad you gave Smyrna a little light at the end of the tunnel. We know it is dark for them as they look down that tunnel of severe persecution but Lord it's that ray of light, that hope that's ours in Christ that keeps us trudging forward. Now Father, comfort hearts that are troubled, and those who Lord Jesus may be here tonight that don't know the Savior. May they come to know you. Maybe some here you tonight you've dealt with about fellowship in this church. You know your will for their lives. We pray that you'll help them to know that. And Heavenly Father, grant that tonight, in every move that we make, Jesus will be glorified. Thank you again for this encouraging promise of Thy Word tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Stand with.